Hello, and welcome to the Geekiest Podcast, where we sit around and talk to our friends about all things geeky, all the while giving each other geek points to determine who is the geekiest. Welcome to the Geekiest. I'm Joe. I'm Kayla. I'm Will. I'm Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> I will confirm we do have Chris, uh, Christopher Robin Neglin, on the show today. He is an author, game designer, uh, former podcaster, and you guys were, were video on demand as well, correct? Um, yeah, we did some YouTube back in the day. Yeah. So all around, definitely part of our, our geek community. I have had the privilege of, of hearing and, and, and workshopping with, uh, with Chris uh, at the RPG Escape at the Adventure Game Store the last couple of years. Um, so welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so what we usually do is we uh, start out with, you know, how did you get into your, your various geekdoms? So uh, I guess the biggest one would be is how did you get into tabletop role playing games? I'm I'm assuming player first, then designer. Uh, yes, barely. Uh, I had already it was around probably twelve or thirteen, and I had already found the uh, Lord of the Rings little little uh, trilogy uh, bookcase book slipcase uh, thing that was hidden in my family's pseudo library and Jules Verne and all that and and Boy Scouts. It was at a camp, and somebody was talking about um, swords on fire and orcs, and that was it. I was in, <laughs> and uh, we literally just did it all. We, nobody had rule books, so our game master—I um, wish I'd remembered his name. I, I, I could give him a thank you now. He like came up with the top of his head. We took pieces of paper to make chits. So I was doing chits before I knew that there were chits that we were a thing <laughs> at one point in D and D. And, uh, you know, the next day I already had my own map drawn out and it was like cave, long tunnel, cave, long tunnel, cave. And he was looking at it and going, this is not. And, <laughs> and if it really dates me, I got the Elmore cover red box from a Sears and Roebuck catalog. Nice. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's a geek point. And then. I also got the blue book, uh, the blue box, uh, and then I had some friends. Uh, basically, we just were discussing this. As of 2010, the town I went to school at for middle school and high school has about 1,400 people in it. So if you want to talk about a very small clique of uh, freaks and geeks, there was about five of us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's great. And wow. we all got along because we didn't have a choice. <laughs> You know, and um, one of them, fortunately, her uh, his mother uh, basically had him every other week because of visitation rights. And, you know, she was like, whatever you guys want to do. And what we did is we would go into the big old town of Tulsa, and which has been in the news recently, of course, and uh, picked up a module. I would read it while they were playing video games. And then the next, like, 24 hours, literally, until we just literally passed out, 
not even at the table. We would just be playing in our sleeping bags and then pick up and run it the next day. Oh my God, and that's that, amazing. And then I was the game. And since then, I was the game master for the longest time for everything. You we fell did. into the trap, Chris. You started doing it and you were good at it. So that is your job from here on out. Well, being good at a game master, especially when it was back then before the internet, was all very subjective. I oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I get We went from there. It was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Gamma World. And um, yeah, in fact, Gamma World was actually kind of where the first real campaign sort of evolved for me. We went from like just doing Dungeons to Dungeons to now at the end of it, our mutant animals had families and a community and to defend and all that jazz. Uh, and then my first kit bashing came when I uh, played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and everybody loved the parry roll. So suddenly, no matter what I ran as a game, whether it be D&D or what, or what, it suddenly had to have a parry roll because by God, that's the way combat should run according to some of my players so uh the the teenage mutant ninja turtles that was the that was riffs that uh, that was before riffs (laughs) that That was that was a palladium that was a palladium product yes before riffs that was written by the awesome eric wejic who uh has long passed unfortunately he also wrote the mind-blowing amber the diceless game uh, where I basically heard of this game <laughs> basically uh, Amber you play demigods uh, it's based on the uh, princes of chaos from Roger Zelazny and in the setup there is only one true dimension the dimension of Amber where it's kind of medieval technology but the the heirs to the throne can actually leave Amber as they leave Amber, they can start to manipulate reality, and there is a whole set of shadows, including our own world, where everything, until it gets out to the edges of chaos, they, things just kind of start to mutate, and you know, you can find everything in anything. It's infinity. Uh, Benedict, the one who's known to be the great tactician general in that, uh, in that universe, how did he get to be so good? He literally would go to a dimension, create the scenario of the fight, and then he would just turn the whole dimension into like a, a big simulation and run it faster. You could just, if you wanted to, you could pick up a skill in no time because you could go to another dimension, another shadow that you created that ran at super time to do things. So that's why it was diceless because anything that was even borderline mundane, your character should not be able to fail. It's only, he should only meet some sort of resistance when he's or she's, uh, basically slamming up against somebody else who's like, no, that's not what I want you to do. Hmm. Lots of politics. In fact, I had to like basically do it every other week because it took me like two weeks to figure out who was doing what to whom. Never mind the players <laughs> who were just pawns in that game. You know, I could kind of understand that with the game that I'm running right now. <laughs> Which game are you running right now? Uh, I'm actually world building. I'm um, running a, it's uh, 5e, but it's uh, based on uh, fairy tales, but mostly Grimm's fairy tales. And there's a lot of like political kind of factions and people having their own agendas going on. And we do every other week. And it takes me that whole time to figure out where they're going to go. Sort of like fables, but in actual fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, um, if you've ever seen the 10th kingdom, that's kind of the yes. best analogy is, is it's this world and within this world, each kind of kingdom represents a different fairy tale. Oh yeah. 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 Like I said, pretty much like fables before fables became this, it's thing where yeah. everybody escapes their dimension, their individual little pockets to go to New York because 
the adversary is taking over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. We have a central city called Nexus City, you know, and it's yeah, just that kind of stuff. But I love that. I love that a lot. That's that's it's amazing how far back these in these incredible like just imaginations and and creating these worlds goes. It's awesome. So um, let's see. That was college. So after during college, actually not even before college, I was in basic training, and uh, one of the games that I enjoyed was called Car Wars. I which was basically kind of, yeah, it was like Death Race 2000, Mad Max, but they had this thing called GURPS, which was a generic universal role-playing system, and you could play, you could role-play those people, yep. you know, that universe, so I went, and I bought it, and I brought it back, so that GURPS was kind of my thing for a long time, because it was universal, I ran it very stripped down, um, learned my bitter lessons, you know, <laughs> that the GM and the players can have different, uh, expectations because i was wanting to do basically chrome knights on you know silver steeds and uh steel steeds i'm sorry and my players wanted to be mad max so that was kind of a mismatch right there yeah i remember uh with i remember we my brother and i had like the car wars that was just like the pamphlet sized game that's the original yep and and then i then he was like the one day he came back he's five years older than me and he came back he was like Oh, they've you know they've adjusted so now like you can be the person in the car as well, um, and that that definitely added a whole whole new avenue to it. Oh yeah, it did, and I enjoyed it, uh, except for like you know I said my players and I had kind of a disconnect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, we did GURPS until Storyteller came along. Uh, I was not such a fan of Vampire itself, but I thought Werewolf was cool and Mage was mind blowing, uh, and I was actually holding out for for Changeling and was kind of disappointed by how Changeling actually turned out. Um, and then that was all college. And then after that, it was just, you know, what I could squeeze in and not. And believe it or not, for a long time, I had a beef with AD&D, not because of just some of the, you know, sacred cows of AD&D, but because I couldn't get anyone else to play anything else. Guys, there's this awesome big, no, how about this over here? Okay, no, never mind. So that was my hate on for for that particular you know that particular game was just you couldn't get anyone to do anything else. You know, I was trying to invent worlds and stories or saw awesome ideas and wanted to run with them and try them. The thing that got squeaked in actually was an awesome game called Pendragon. Does that ring a bell with anybody? I have heard of Pendragon. I've never played it, but I've heard of it. Absolutely I've heard of it. <laughs> for those who don't know, Pendragon is a, a great study in a lot of different things that was done by the awesome Greg Stafford, uh, who, of course, we've lost since then. Um, <clears throat> but it was the concept was you played a chivalrous knight in a mythical-slash-historical Arthurian sort of era. And it was a great idea of how if you really focus, narrow down a concept, that doesn't it can liberate you versus constricting you. Uh, it was uh, kind of the uh, Chaosism's basic role-playing set, but it was with a d20 instead of a 100. 100 percentile, um, which threw me off. I never knew that for a long time because I haven't got around to playing Call of Cthulhu yet, actually. Me Ran it once, but didn't play it. And um, <clears throat> But yeah, it's, it's awesome and it's great. And, uh, and what I did to make it a little different was I actually said in the Forest Sauvage, uh, that is where my, my female knights come from. And no one gives you a tough time about being a woman. They just go for the Forest Sauvage, you're, you're a female knight. Enough said. If you came out of there being a knight, we'd have no questions about your knighthood. Nice. 
Thank you. And because of that, it was kind of the game that would never die because I had quite a few of my female players coming back because of Pendragon. One of the many little things they do is your experience points aren't so literal in expanding your character. It's more called glory and expands your reputation. So a squire can still join you. In fact, you only game during the summer months because winter's hard. Right. And <laughs> I like that. That. It, that means every year is a new year. So you think about it and how you could potentially die. You don't really play one night. You play a legacy of nights. You literally have a thing where you can put, here is where my stuff goes, my next of kin. Who could be the squire that another player is playing? But, you know, the, when the new knight comes in, he's not overly shadowed by the other guys, by reputation maybe, but not by combat. So, um, you know, they would come in and they'd be like, well, how many years have passed? And I would tell them and they would roll the little dice to say, you know, how much glory they picked up for these little kind of charts that would give a pseudo summer that they didn't do. And then we just pick up from there. And it was very episodic. Uh, the, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, the Boy King, it's had a couple different names, but the big adventure that basically goes from Uther all the way to the fall of Camelot is like an 80-year campaign. So an 80-episode campaign. You can do the math how long that campaign is. It's, it's highly regarded. And it's awesome. As a fan of uh, the Arthurian legends, um, that sounds amazing. Do yourself a favor. Pick it up. The fifth edition is not that old, even. It's still, uh, and it's just a beautiful book, too. I will definitely do that. And then I guess what you guys need to know is when did I start doing the writing stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you've, you've both been uh, the game designer as well as, uh, you know, fictional, a uh, fiction writer. So, so um, <clears throat> my game plan in college was to become a journalist so that I could become eventually go into public relations and then do public relations for uh, game companies. Because I thought game companies, especially in the 80s and the 90s, they must be like regular big companies, right? I had <laughs> no idea. <laughs> None. None. Uh, you know, I, I, have to, I remember seeing, you know, on the back of like, you know, the TSR, you know, the D&D books or, or any of the TSR books and thinking, Wow, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. That that must there must be like a big building and everything. And exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> um, so I really wasn't planning on game design at that time. I just wanted to be. I, I was just doing that, and then you know, helping out the game company. And then eventually, I'd retire after I could set myself up as you know a full time you know novelist. Again, you know, no, not not really telling me <laughs> the reality of that. So, um, in the meantime, doing journalism and marketing and, and advertising and winning a couple of awards here and there and having one story carried by the Associate Press, whoo, the highlight, um, I tried to repeatedly to get into uh, fiction writing and trying to break through traditional fiction writing. Uh, I even uh, had a, was part of a great 10-year uh, long workshop by a great guy, Troy, um, Adam Troy Castro who I call the writer's writer. Most writers love him, but once you get past that to like the regular mass public and you, you don't see much love for him, which is kind of heartbreaking. Um, but yeah, I was told that I, I had the chops. All I needed was luck. All I needed was the right story to cross the right desk at the right time with the right person sitting in the desk. Can we curse in this podcast? Yes, please. Upon hearing that, my first thoughts were, now I'm fucked. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I still, so I don't even want to get into how many decades I kept doing it. 
Uh, I have some self-published works. Think of that, what you will. Some people think that's great. Some people like, eh. Uh, I think my major failing in that is I took a, couple, a year and a half to kind of get an idea of how to convert um, you know, a Word document into an ebook. And then when I first put my, my short stories up, Amazon was like, hey, you don't need anything. We just need a Word doc. We can translate that for, you know, we can convert that for you, no problem. And I was like, again, now I'm fucked because if I can make it, if it's that easy for me, it's that easy for everybody. So everybody will be doing it. So I kind of, you know, instead of getting ahead of the curve, I just kind of went in with the rest of the tsunami. Uh, on top of that, uh, Amazon's unlimited, uh, whatever they want to call it, their unlimited subscription service to doing ebooks. Uh, they can never get the, the get it right. It's always gamed by con men who do who uh, figure out how to like make a fake book and fake reviews so they can get tons of cash and then vanish out. No matter how Amazon fix it, but uh, yeah, it went from like, uh, oh, you know what? We don't want you to read short stories anymore. We want you to read novels. And I'm like, there go all my short stories. <laughs> but um, not long after that, a couple of years later, uh, DM Guild came out. Uh, in addition to that, uh, some other companies picked it up, including Monty Cook Games, which does the Cypher system. Um, <clears throat> we can get into that later if you want to know how the Cypher yeah. system works. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you know, we've we've probably we've, we've exhaustively talked about D and D and and the DMs Guild. Um, oh, okay. But I mean, we definitely want to hear your story about the DMs Guild. Um, but I know for myself, I've I've looked at the Cypher system. Um, I'm intrigued by it, especially. I'm not sure if you had if you saw the, the Amazon uh, series um, Carnival Row. Yes, uh, there is a there's a, a cipher system setting uh, a setting for it set using the cipher system rules, which mm -hmm. I'm kind of intrigued to run because I really like that show and and that aesthetic. Oh, it's a fun show, and uh, the guy who wrote the show was one of the co-writers for that supplement, actually. Uh, excellent, and uh, and uh, did you know there was a little web series for it? I did not. That, yeah, they, that's what they did. One of the things they did to promote the show is they have a little web series with some streamers. They get the streamers. They get them in costume. They are actually extras on the set in one of the episodes. And then he runs a game for them. I'll send you the link for that. Okay, we are. To, I'm, I am like, I just got tingly. Like, oh, my God. I, I can't. My girlfriend, she's not a big geek girl. She actually claims she fell asleep in Lord of the Rings, but loved Carnival Row. So that's that's a testament right there. Exactly. She I actually she didn't even wait for me to, to be around. She finished it on her own. I was like, what? So, yeah, Ooh. big Carnival Row fan. That, that's a little bit of a faux pas there. I mean, I, I know. I know. But you know what? We now have Baby Yoda, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> not Baby making anybody miss up. I'm, I'm, I'm not not playing to the crowd. I promise you this is my life. <laughs> Baby Yoda does seem to make up for everything that's wrong in the world. It does. He does. It does. <laughs> okay, so you were so DM's Guild rolls around, uh, and but I don't do anything for it. Okay, because I only play Fifth Edition once in a while. Um, but I play the Cipher system. Actually, that comes from the podcast I was in. I had a I, when I say a, I was invited to join a podcast with a a new buddy of mine, and then we picked up a couple of other friends. So for about two years, it was called the Nerd Stravaganza. Um, and we did okay, but, uh, four people, three marriages, and then the show was kind of done. <laughs> Everybody but me got married and it kind of fell to the wayside and that's, you know, that's life. That's happened sometimes, right? The band, the, the, the high school band breaks up. Listen, uh, this, show, <laughs> this show here, we're on 
iteration three or four for when you yeah. say that when you say iteration does it mean it, it kind of weirdly gets uh it really gets passed on like an heirloom to like other other geeky podcasters and they just keep it going well it Not kind of quite. evolves it's always been joe and i yeah. but okay. like the the format and the the other hosts and stuff have kind of evolved over time because for us that's literally what happened it was like the, us four were even the original four it was just like you know one or two hosts would stay on for a while and they would take on everything and then they would kind of pass on the torch to somebody else or more, more I say pass on the torch. It was more like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. You want it? Great. Here, have it. Thanks. <laughs> Moving on. And uh, that's where my handle Ganza Gaming comes from, short for Nerdstravaganza and then the gaming part to kind of match up with that. Uh, and that's kind of my handle for some of my products that I do which are for the Cypher system. That's kind of where I started. I got into the Cypher. Rewind for a moment. I'm sorry. So we did podcast. We interviewed Shauna Germain, one of the people from Mighty Cook Games. That got me even more to the Cypher system. And then I decided to run it. You mentioned YouTube. Uh, we mentioned YouTube earlier. So I have a couple of, you would call them actual plays, I guess. I took my play for, for four hours and I cut it into 20-minute segments. And I think mine actually came out around the same time Critical Role was kind of getting big, but I didn't really get any response from it. So then it's, it's out there. And I've had some people actually go back to it later and go, man, you should have kept it up. And I'm like, man, you, you should have been there. So I would have had been motivated to keep it up. You know, and you only see like six likes. What, what do you do? I mean, you know. Yeah, uh, it, it's tough to keep the faith when you're, when you're building a fandom. That's something that the, the cutting it up into pieces, we've had the debate about that a few times. Like, do you keep it your gigantic four-hour session? Do you cut it up? I think everybody's got their own opinion on that. I've seen some people do that and then try to spin it as like something they invented. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they don't even go as far as we know. They're like, oh no, this will be awesome. 20 minute segments. Um, and I think actually I've heard the Harmon Quest does something like that. They kind of just chop it up a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so with Ganza Gaming and doing the Cypher stuff, I made my own uh, stuff. I made my own PDFs for community content. So in other words, DMs Guild for the Cypher system. And I had a pretty decent response. Uh, even went to a Gen Con and met a person who called himself a fan of mine. I was like, what? And um, it kind of went from there. Uh, some friends of mine, they were putting together their own role-playing game. They heard I was doing well with that. They decided they wanted to go, hey, you know, you did fiction. Why don't we do a workshop? I did a workshop with them. And they kind of wrapped that up because they wanted to really focus on the game. But they're like, between what we learned from your workshop and the stuff you're doing with Cypher, would you like to join us? And that became Esper Genesis, uh, where I'm like the junior, junior team member compared to Rich Lesko Fair that I want to give an awesome shout out to because he masterminded the rules that use fifth edition. It's highly compatible. And also the awesome, you know, uh, space opera world he put together, especially, you know, and during these times, because he is a, uh, he is a designer of color. Um, you know, hopefully someday we can just say a great game designer and then that, that's it, you know. <laughs> Agreed. Exactly. But I still want to give him props. Uh, also, um, my other buddy, Brian, that you already did, uh, interviewed earlier, he was the layout artist. I mean, he had great art, and he didn't bury it. He made it pop, and then he even put he even did his own little special things. Like, sometimes where things you see glowing, they didn't glow in the original. He made them glow with his, like, layout. So it was, like, borderline enhancing the art in addition to just layout and design. Uh, I am proud to say that on my uh, bookshelf, I have both the core rule book for Esper Genesis as well as the uh, their version of uh, the the 
bestiary or, or the threats database. Yes, the which, threats database. Yes, which I had a little more. I have a little more of my own content in there, but uh, I mean, like Aspergenesis, It's like I did a couple of the stories and just one or two little rule here things. Everything else is Rich's mastermind, and then threats database. There's several things in there that were born out of my head. So, so I'm a little more proud of the threats database because there's a little bit more of me in there. Not that I'm saying I did even remotely half of it. Not even remotely half, but but you know, it's so good stuff. I mean, like a perfect example, the SETI snapper, the little round thing with the yeah, yeah. I hope you were highly entertained by that. I I I, I remember uh, it was at this year. I think it was this year's RPG Escape uh, when we went on break. I, I Brian came over and I was fl flipping through the through the threats database, and he was pointing out some of the some of the different and and he was trying to show me like the very I get, I'm trying to think of the word for, but like this is basically like you're not going to see this type of thing in any other game, but as for Genesis, um, and I think the the SETI snapper was was one of them. And oh, okay, uh, yeah, he was just like he was like, oh, look at this, and you know, and then there was another where he was showing me. Um, I was telling about one of the artists, and I wish I could remember right now, but that was like February, which feels like a year ago when it was only four months ago. It was either probably Tanho Sim or uh, I'm going to butcher the name because I don't remember it myself. Uh, Casa is his last name, or Casas. Casas. I, I that that sound. I think that's it. That's it was something. Like... But yeah, he he was just showing me the artwork and 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 explaining like one of the creatures was kind of one of Brian's uh, go to monsters, and I was just I was blown away at the book. Um, I, I, I'm 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 trying to you know, squeeze those extra hours into the day to actually like dig into those rules and maybe run it, uh, run it as a one shot one of these days, uh, record it and put it out there. I'll warn you, you may end up not running it as a one shot. <laughs> I don't know what it is, whether it's just the freedom of not having to think about it being in a fantasy world or just you're already playing in a world where it's not set in your head because it's not Star Wars or Star Trek. But I, some people, they just let the governors go. They just let it go. And, you know, and have a ball because they have no expectations. I, I, and I can totally see that. And I can see that with, um, I kind of miss having a good, I, so for myself, I, I love doing the fantasy D and D stuff, but I miss having a good supers game and I miss having a good sci-fi. Well, for me, I feel like Esper Genesis just basically expands your options. I don't even think it's a competition. It's just, here's more cool stuff to do for your, in your 5e. Yeah um so you get you get you get into the cipher system so for those of us who have not touched it what's kind of the the ele elevator pitch on uh cipher system so in two minutes or less is that your say yeah well you know <laughs> okay so uh cipher is an awesome game it is asymmetrical what the players get and what the gm get are two different things uh what the players get is they get a sentence they have a, a menu of items to pick in the sentence for the verb, the noun, and the adjective. Uh, a bold warrior who rides the lightning. Who rides the lightning would be kind of the adjective in this case. And uh, to break it down into D&D, &D, the, the, uh, you know, the bold is basically kind of sort of a skill package. Uh, the warrior is obviously what you would call a class, but it's called a type. And it is multi-classed, using D&D &D words again. Uh, with a theme, like rides the lightning, or license to kill, moves like a cat, 
And uh, your characters start off very competent, competent at the start. So for me, it feels like you're playing D&D 5th level to 20th without half the math that you need. And in addition to that, uh, it's more of a resource management versus a dice management game because you have these pools for your, for your might, your speed, and your mind. Your intellect, I'm sorry. And uh, when you want to do something cool or do your powers then you blow points from that. But when you're in combat, suddenly those three pools become the total of your hit points. And one of the tricks is that you have a thing called edge, and the edge makes a discount. So even if you have zero points in your might pool, if you have a might of one, you can just still do some standard fighting techniques without you know, worrying that you're out of might points. And for the game master, the difference is is everything is boiled down to two numbers, which is your difficulty number and your task number. Uh, your task number is 1 through 10, and the difficulty is basically times 3, because when you do something, uh, you basically do it from, uh, from 1 to 10, and when you get it to the number you need, you multiply that by 3, and that's the roll that you need on the dice, d20 dice. So if something's a 3, you need to roll 9. And it may sound a little weird, but when you do it in play, it's much smoother. And for the Game Master, if it's, everything boils off to those two numbers. So I could have a Hobgoblin who's a level three, but he has nine hit points. Whatever I need, a bigger number, I'll use the nine. If I need a smaller number, I'll use the three. And then I just have to think of one number, and I'm good to go. Now, Chris, to be, to be fair, it sounds, it, it sounds a little complicated when you just hear it off the bat and you've never heard of it before. But then again, Every game sounds extraordinarily complicated when you've never heard of it before. Well, I guess, you know, if you're trying to think of a way how people boil down D&D to, like, you roll a D20 and you add some numbers. Uh, for Cypher, it would be you uh, roll a D20 and you, and you subtract some numbers, and that's it. And these, you said these, these pools of, uh, that, that do the different things. How do you, like, if you're, if you're running low or whatever, how do you get them back? Oh, uh, well, you, you know, there's healing spells, of course, from different, uh, different adjectives, which we call foci. Also, you have a recovery roll, and basically you roll a 1d20 plus your level, and that gets you points back, and you can spread the points however you want. So even if you have one point in a, in a pool, you're going to do better than if you had no points in a pool. Uh, and then to add some realism to it, your first, one, one D, uh, your first recovery roll, you, do, you can do it within an action. But you got to wait 10 minutes before you can get your second recovery roll. So, you know, you just can't basically roll a bunch of dice and then suddenly become Superman again. Okay. And, and this, is a, um, this is a high magic system? Is there a lot of, lot of uh, spell kind of stuff, or is it more combat? There is combat to it. Uh, it likes to do more than they would like you to do focus more on exploration. There is a thing called a cipher, which is basically potions and scrolls on steroids. And their whole <laughs> philosophy is... You can design a world where you're uh, not really caring about it being a balanced place because between all your special abilities and your way to spend points and these cool one-shot items called ciphers, your players are going to find solutions. Okay. And so in that, in that way, it's very old school. You know, you, you don't just you look for balanced encounters. You're, you know, everyone's asking, well, how many, how many skeletons are next to that cave over there before we walk into the cave? Gotcha. Okay. It, it is, a, it, you know, while most role-playing games like to only do one shtick, this has like two or three different sticks. So 
for some people it's like, well, there's a little, you know, we're all know kind of a general pattern of how we like to do a role playing game and Cypher kind of really goes against two or three of those patterns. So some people just don't like it because it, this is not the way it's done, but it works. Well, I mean, everybody finds everybody finds their game. D is D and D is not the end of be all, and everybody finds something that they like somewhere. You know, and I've I, I enjoy Cypher the most, but I've played Fate, I've played Powered by the Apocalypse, I've done D and D, I've done Storyteller. They all have their strengths and minuses. I use Mutants and Masterminds for a little while as a generic system to play Farscape. Okay. And the irony to that was is that I had no problem with it mechanically, but my players kept seeing that there was a superhero role book in front of them, and they kept wanting to think, no, this is a superhero role-playing book. Mm. No, we're playing, you're using the rules for that, but we're playing Farscape. So that helped me expand that player perception is important, despite how much a GM may or may not want that to be. So a lot of times when I think about designing my games and stuff, I think about perceptions and I think about experiences. You know, even beyond a story, because when you label something as a story all the time, uh, it starts becoming baggage and people start asking questions like, why can't I play Wolverine? Because you're, you know, in with a bunch of other people. Oh, he's in the X-Men too. But yeah, if you write off Wolverine goes off for two to three issues to do his own solo adventure, that's because the writers can get away with that. We're at a gaming table all together. Yeah. You know, where the, the, you know, you can make a loader work but it takes extra effort and attention by everybody to know how to do it and the trust everybody has that the guy playing the loader is going to suddenly go oh i have my heart of gold i'm coming back and i'm not being such a jerk at the moment to be such a loner yeah so that's why i like to lean more on experiences versus saying it's a story yeah. talking about what you're what you're talking about trying to make you know mutants mastermind work for uh farscape game it kind of makes you have to tip your hat to uh steve jackson and gerps with with what they came up with oh exactly yeah they 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 made a great little system it was you know a little easier on the math for people who hadn't found out champions yet <laughs> i have played champions and uh and champions works too actually the beauty about champions is even though the math is you know a little crazier um it is much more internally consistent it's not realistic but it's much more internally yeah. consistent and that gives you a better perception and illusion that since everything's more consistent, that, it, you know, it, it all fits in its own kind of, you know, subgenre that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, like, you see that now also with um, Savage Worlds, where it's kind of built as a generic system that you can then put a supers game on or a sci-fi game or Weird West or, I mean, I know it came out of Weird West with Deadlands, but it's, you know they've done a, a pretty decent job of taking a generic structure that you can then uh, put more settings onto. Exactly. Uh, without, without the having the hangover of, but the book has, you know, a guy in a cape flying on the cover. Exactly. And uh, actually what's even crazier is it was Deadlands, but it was the Deadlands war game that Savage Worlds really came out of. Right. Which was just, you know, it's another bizarre bit on its own. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a friend of mine had had the Savage Worlds, uh, not the, had the Deadlands uh, game, the 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 war game, and I remember it was like, because I, like, I I wasn't aware at the time of the history, um, and let, let's give you a geek point for for that. Um, but I remember it was like, oh, well, you know, I came in thinking it was like the Savage Worlds of the RPG, and he's like, no, 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 this is a this is a war game. What you're thinking about is 
and I think he might have had the books for it as well. So it's called the uh, I think it was the Iron Rail Wars or something like that. Yeah, I, that seems familiar. Um, great artwork on the box, as I recall. <laughs> Which I, I, I the Weird West uh, as a setting, I, I really appreciate. Um, I have never run anything in it, but it definitely has. There's there's an itch in the back of the head for it. Oh, one of the actually a couple of the things I one of the novels I have in my trunk, so to speak, is uh, a weird western, basically Frankenstein's monster in the uh, weird west. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like fun. It does, but I couldn't get an agent to pick it up. Oh. At the time I'd written it, they were like, "Yeah, weird westerns don't work now." Like, there's like three or four weird western novels every year. <laughs> Uh, so I'm I'm curious as as someone who likes to write and who would eventually like to publish. You've kind of gone through some interesting avenues. Um, what what like talk to me about what you've learned about getting things out there? What's is it just is it just tenacity? Is it just persistence? Um, it's a variety of different things, and again, a healthy dose of luck. Uh, I can guarantee you that if you can write, you know, solid prose. And you can write it fast uh, with a minimum of mistakes. That puts you way ahead of the pack of a lot of other people. You can be awesome and great and artistic, but if you take forever, that's not going to help. You can be really fast, but if you write really, you know, not that you write really poor prose or you have poor grammar skills, then that's not going to help either. So gotcha. okay, so it so it is. Don't don't go over it twenty times. Get it, polish it, get it out there. I would say your very first manuscript. You should go over 20 times because that's the first one you have to hand in in one piece. Uh, I don't know. If, I apologize if you do know this, but I, I'm coming in kind of blind. When, do you do your, when you do your very first piece, it has to, the manuscript has to be in whole. After that, once you've established yourself, then you can pitch projects to people. But the first time, you got to have the proof in the pudding, and it's got to be the whole thing. So that everybody can look at it and they go great. And they basically everyone else that goes up the ladder has a proof of concept that you that you can at least you have the goods. And then if you can back it up with good speed and you know solid prose and good command of grammar, then you can go far. For example, is uh, Chuck Wendig. I mean, you know, he actually started out as a uh, I think a storyteller game designer, and uh, they used that to get the speed up to get going, and then went into you know fiction. And eventually start, you know, eventually got to write stuff for Star Wars. But part of that was because they could give him something and he could, you know, within a year, get it out there. Okay, that's that's good advice. Thank you. I, I will take that no, to heart for sure. And then my other advice is if, if you can afford it, go to several different conventions so that you can network. And when you network, you know, don't be pushing your novel out there. Just, hey, what's going on? That's cool. That's great. Make some friends. Uh, in fact, I've seen a lot of times that, you know, when you look through history and stuff, a lot of the best writers were in contact with each other, bouncing ideas off each other, if not literal neighbors at times. I think Mark Twain was neighbors with a couple of authors. I, uh, I, I know I, I was a huge fan of the Robert Howard uh, Conan stories right? and, and, and reading about it. He, he and Lovecraft uh, used to send letters back and forth and would you know they they would throw parts of plots at each other or ideas for creatures or whatever and kind of uh workshop it via via rather long letters exactly another one i'm thinking of is i mean back when i was starting back in the days when you know we wrote on we, we wrote stories on stone tablets <laughs> 
wouldn't even think of fan fiction. And then for the longest time, fan fiction was kind of like, oh, fan fiction. Right. And now fan fiction is a legitimate way to get your practice out in the open, take feedback with a grain of salt, a pound of salt probably, and get a early fan base. So that's not anything to, you know, to, to shake your, your finger at either. No. Something no, to look into. That's, yeah, I that's mean, an it, interesting thought. Yeah, wasn't it? It's the Fifty Shades of Grey author. Uh, she got her her she got noticed because she was a Twilight uh, fan fiction when, uh, I, as I remember reading, um, when she would post her latest stories to the the one fan fiction site, there would be such a demand to download it that she would it would knock the uh, the web server down for a little bit while you know when it, when it her, she would first post her stories so exactly and she's done pretty well for herself regardless of what you feel about well, her writings I'm, I'm just saying i've heard some people say you know why does she get all that money when i know somebody who can't even get a book contract who writes at a different level <laughs> than the person than 50 shades of gray just just well, yeah don't get me started it, it goes to, it goes it goes to that luck part of the equation yeah, and that's where, you know, the networking, hopefully, knock on wood, reduces that luck component. Um, also, uh, if you can, I would, you know, if you feel like you've got some uh, fancy pants short stories, uh, you could send them off to magazines. Uh, that always helps to get noticed. And in some ways, doing short stories um, kind of really helps accelerate your development versus writing a whole novel. Because a novel, you've got tons of room and meandering and, you know, it, it's got some freedom to it, but when you're doing a short story and you're just trying to get it, you know, done in a small space, it's a different skill set, but it will help you on other skill sets beyond just doing the short story thing. And then my big uh, suggestion for a no-no on a short story is the zinga is you know the the zinger uh, style where you're like, oh, oh, the twist at the end that changes everything. Yeah, that's the least thing that's in vogue now. Do, do people still read magazines? Is that a thing? They're all online now, right? They're all online. They're all, yeah, online. Uh, and their submission uh, periods are all aggravatingly chaotic. You, every, that's one of the reasons I stopped writing short stories. Start, stopped trying to submit short stories was, A, either all the short story places I was looking for to, sh to shoot a story were closed to submissions, or B, um, some place would have a contest for anthology. I'd submit for the anthology. Uh, usually I, I would get something like, you are this? And some proof that I actually was like this close, but not close enough. And then I have a story that's very tailored to something that now I can't sell. And guess what? You weren't the only person entering that contest. So there's like 50 to 60 other stories on that very similar theme now floating out there being pitched to magazines, if their submission window is even open. Yeah, I, I for for off and on, I've, I've considered it. And uh, across the top of my uh, the the bookmark section of my browser uh, is a ton of you know the submission pages for various anthologies and and magazines and it's always like okay well this one's open now and that one's closed and that one opens in two weeks and yeah exactly so I you kind of just have to have a whole bunch of stuff ready to go and just wait <laughs> pretty much it's yeah, actually that was when i for a long time that was my advice write a bunch of short stories and then sit on them and then just keep sending them and rotate them and then you know hopefully if somebody gives you feedback by the way if they reject a story but give you feedback that is a huge hurdle you've just jumped that means that person means you have potential 
keep submitting to them and following and, their advice. I was going to say, and take the note they gave you. Exactly. If you say that somebody doesn't understand your vision, you've got a long way to go. <laughs> Just saying. But I think that goes for a lot of things. Is if you get feedback on anything you're doing, even as a as a DM, I you know you want to check in with your players and and get that feedback on how that session went. If you get if you get them to give you feedback, take it and and you know. Oh, one hundred percent. You know, and, and that, I mean that's the the only way. As you know, I think DMing is is a lot of art uh, with a bit of science in it. Um, and, and that's the only way to really improve an art is to, to take the criticism and, you know, refine what you're doing. Exactly. Oh, and as a little shout out, um, a really great podcast for, uh, talking about gaming and stuff is Ken and Robin talk about stuff. I, we, I have mentioned them, uh, okay. previously. <laughs> um, uh, See? And- <laughs> validation, man, validation. <laughs> Um, and especially because, uh, you know, Ken Height uh, comes down here for the RPG Escape every year and uh, doles out some excellent information. And, and I know I've gone, I think, the last two years, three years. And every time I walk away from it, um, my mind has been expanded as as a game, as a game master, as a world builder. Um, it just. You know, and 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 you are also part of the uh, the panel of those, and uh, you have helped with the expansion of my game mastering skills. I I am this. It's a good thing this is audio because <laughs> I'm blushing right about now. I was about to say thank you for just you know getting the feedback that uh, the what we do for RPG Escape, which is uh, usually in February. Uh, it is a open free workshop over at the Adventure Game Store. And uh, and then you just went on to just you know make me blush. So, um, I mean, I, I mean the the Q and A panel is great. Um, the last couple of years, it's and each year it's been a different organic topic. I'll say, um, but of equal if not greater value, at least in my opinion, are the workshops. And I have got to sit knee to knee with you, and with Ken Height, um, and Darcy Ross, um, and and Hal Mangold, and you know, workshop ideas and, and, and do that group work and just, uh, and, and get pushed. And I think that one of the excellent things with having, you know, you and Ken and all, and the others is you guys kind of like, look at where we're going and you can kind of push us outside of, okay, well, how is the door locked or why is the door locked or how can we make the locked door more interesting? Exactly. You know, is it can a door be picked or is it DNA sequenced because of the alien civilization that built it? So uh, just touching back on Cypher again, uh, one of the little uh, things I didn't cover is they have this thing called GM intrusions where you make the door more exciting. And then what you do is you go, well, what are the odds? There's something more exciting about that door and you get an experience points if you roll with it. Oh, that's cool. And they even expanded that to a player intrusion where the player goes, you know what? I, I think I want. I need some more. You know, I'm going to spend an XP to you know do a little thing where the door's more interesting. But now it's more interesting. And my favorite GM. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> I like that. That's neat. You know, I have to tell you, I would the the years of of watching Joe uh, go to the 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 seminar has been. He comes home and he's all jazzed about stuff, and I want to hear everything that's going. And I haven't gone because it's kind of like that's your thing, honey. You'll go. And I've gotten to the point where it's like, all right, now I'm jealous. I want to go. <laughs> we'll I mean, be looking forward to seeing you next for, next February. I hope. 
Yay! <laughs> and, and then, of course, that that also doesn't then uh, you know that also extends to the uh, the trip after uh, trip later on to Jackson's for ice cream. If you guys who are listening have never been to Jackson's, you you don't understand. You know, you can intellectually know that the Grand Canyon is big, but then when you go to the Grand Canyon, you're like, "Holy shit, that's big!" <laughs> so, when I say you go to Jackson's and they give you big portions, you're gonna be like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 Chris, I get yeah, big portions, whatever." And then you go to Jackson's, you're like, oh, "Holy <laughs> shit, it's big!" In fact, yeah. so far, knock on wood. I have been the reigning champion of actually managing to finish my damn ice cream. <laughs> oh, not yeah, first, I, not second, just actually accomplishing the fact. Oh no, no, you. Uh, this year, I sat across from uh, from Morgan, uh, who we had on from uh, Mindflayed Mondays, uh, and I sat next to Darcy and was two seats over from Ken. And yeah, we all were were defeated by the colossal amount of ice cream slow and steady slow and steady wins the race my friend can i give a geek point for that is that that's geek point worthy in my book it's just finishing a jackson's ice cream that that's it now the real question is do they do a glucose test on the way out just to make sure you're okay oh no no then that would make them liable for those things they, they don't afford the care for the insurance for that just make sure you get out into the parking lot before you fall into the sugar coma Exactly. <laughs> and tip the monkey. <laughs> I was so disappointed the monkey was a no-show this year. Yeah, that was a little... He was so cute. We will have to call ahead of time and make sure that the monkey is there. We will not show up unless you bring the monkey. <laughs> no monkey, no money from us. But then there's no ice cream. True. Then we're just all like sitting around eating out of a tub of like Blue Rabbit. Depressed. <laughs> Like in a circle in the parking lots, giving yeah. them stares as they <laughs> exactly <laughs> hear Ken rather loudly in in a, the the a stage version of of you know this this ice cream's okay, but it's not as good as what we had in there before. But there's no monkey, no monkey. <laughs> I don't know at that point. Everyone else in line for Jackson's may be assuming that we're just performance art at that point. So then we put out that we put out the hat and. Exactly. And then we use that to go into Jackson's because even though we didn't get the monkey, at least we got free ice cream. <laughs> I could roll. That could, to that could totally be a thing a flash mob game and a parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> you know, we could make this happen. <laughs> flash mob Roving GMs through the parking lot, casting die. Just walking up to random strangers. You're in a tavern and somebody comes up to you. What do you say? <laughs> Where's the monkey? <laughs> yeah. Don't give me flashbacks to when I used to actually run LARPs for Storyteller. Okay, that well, is one thing. As, now you're going to have to tell the story. <laughs> now that story? sounds like there's an interesting story behind that. <laughs> well, I mean, at one point, LARPs for, especially for Storyteller, were hot because you didn't have to dress up like you were in Renaissance Fair because back then Renaissance Fair wasn't cool yet. So you could just dress up to the nines and like you, as much as you could as a college kid and then play vampire. It was awesome. Actually, we had one guy, he turned it into a business. He uh, graduated from a Catholic college and knew the monks really well. So he rented out a dorm room for the night. And the night was turned into four uh, episodes of nights with like, 
like a half hour day in between. So you could have like a, a kind of a day session. And then he charged money for people to come in and, you know, go through all these storylines. That was a big one. Uh, until like some dudes who were constantly, I don't know where they were, but they were in everybody's business in every part of like our college scene, trying to become the king of the geeks, which I never stood because that just ends up making you the king of geeks. I, I don't know why that would be an aspiration, but but yeah, they eventually became werewolves and they were howling so loud they woke up the monks and that died. I'll end it. You can't can't disturb monk sleep. Yeah, no, no. So, but yeah, we actually ran a few because a buddy of mine and his wife started up a game store, uh, and uh, we had a great time. You know, uh, I was a were spider pretending to be a Tremere and actually got into the board of uh, harpies, which. Unless you're really into vampire, none of those words made any sentence that you understood. I got Tremere. <laughs> Every yes. single one of those words meant a lot to me. Aren't you just a little yeah. bit? Just a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I played in Asimite for the very longest time in a LARP game. And um, for, for those that are not familiar with the vampire LARP scene, uh, the, the Asimites are very much assassins. They're the ones that you don't want in your town. Um, my, my character managed to be made share, uh, prince of the city three times. <laughs> the same city three times with the same result. He declared it an anarch state and started World War Four, Five, Six, Seven. Did you have a different name each time? Nope. Same name. Same character. <laughs> See, wow, vampires that like humans don't learn. <laughs> well we that had... was the brilliant part is that everybody would 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 flow in and out kind of ebb and flow uh out of the scene and out of the game so every time he he's interacting with new people there was a there was a larp game that took place for a long time and i never got to join it i always kind of wanted to but was kind of like i don't know i'm not cool enough or geeky enough what? um I know I was very shy when I was young, big shock. Um, but uh, they actually, it was like being raised in, in South Florida. They actually like ran around downtown Hollywood mm -hmm. yeah, and, and did that. And I thought it was so cool. That was the one in young circle, right? Yeah. Yeah. They would like run around young circle park and all over downtown Hollywood. And they had like this big vampire werewolf thing going on. I always thought it was so cool. It, it, it just blows my mind that you didn't think you were cool enough to join a, a vampire LARP. I'm just. <laughs> so I was, like, I was very sheltered as a child. <laughs> you do know, like three years ago, like like almost all of the all of the male players in those games were like talking about their 23rd level Ranger Paladin, right? <laughs> just saying. <laughs> the, 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 when I started to get into the community and like kind of got the, the guts to start playing and stuff like that, it was that, that, that flirting was telling someone about your character. Oh, <laughs> and I guess, you know, for me, uh, actually I've tried to avoid that because by that time it was like, yeah, nobody wants to hear about my character. <laughs> I want to hear about your character. <laughs> oh my. So <laughs> There you go. See, it works. <laughs> Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> as, as a real-life side bit, by the way, I have a friend who's a teacher, and she's learned that when it comes to uh, if a boy uh, if a boy student is having issues, like, you know, won't talk about what's bothering him, she'll get him to play a board game. And in playing him the board game, he, he focuses on the game and then just starts to start rattling off and talking. 
one of the many wonderful benefits of gaming. Yes, I love that. I know a lot of teachers that are using using gaming, using role playing, using board games to reach out to their kids. It's super cool. In fact, Brian and I, until the COVID was happening, every other week we were at the library uh, running a D&D game with kids that were ranging from about eight, I guess, maybe a little younger, to 12. And we had them build their own uh, little land and populate it and everything. Yeah, I I remember talking with Brian because I was supposed to, this summer, be running a uh, a learn-to-play D&D at one of the libraries as part of their summer program. Um, and I talked, oh, okay. and I talked to Brian about you know what was going on with his and God, it sounded like you guys had such a good group of kids. And actually, when I was I, I had to go do a presentation before a bunch of librarians, and the librarian for that library was there, and she came up and she's like, "Do you know Brian?" I'm like, "Yes, I know Brian, and I know he's running this at your at your branch." And she was like, "Oh my God, this!" And she was sort of like telling me about like what the kids were do- were supposed to be doing that week or they'd done the week before, and I was just like. Yeah, I'm going to bring this to to this other library, and she was just like, "Oh, this, you know, you definitely should talk with with, with Brian and, and and his group about the stuff because they they were doing such a good job." So, in, uh, in fact, we were they were hoping that they could have like a a big big session where basically we'd be teaching people how to be DMs, and yeah. then and and then have those DMs plus our DMs like you just get a whole like big community game going. So, you know, come on in, play, find out what this is about, all that shit. Yeah, yeah, they were, um, I was talking with some of the folks at the library about uh, also kind of helping teach library staff how to run games. Awesome. Yeah, which, you know, unfortunately because of what, you know, social distancing and whatnot, we can't can't do that right now. But hopefully when this is all under control, we can get back to that because I can't, I mean, I was I was a teacher for three years. Uh, I taught middle school special ed in the South Bronx, um, and wow. yeah, uh, eighth grade. I taught I taught all the grades of middle school, six through eight, uh, not at the same time. But and I really wish um, I had thought about bringing in role playing games and stuff like that into. I brought games in, um, but I really wish, like uh, thinking back, I wish I had brought it in because I. One of the things I found with with the kids was getting them to access their imagination. Uh, one of my favorite stories from it is uh, the the first school is that um, they were we were a pilot program for uh, bringing Tai Chi into public schools as like part of the physical education program, and they wanted they're like, oh, Mr. Hawk, we want your we want your class, and I was like, are you sure? Um, and they're like, yes. And I remember going in and we went, we did a couple sessions and one of the kids came over to me and this is a kid who um, had issues controlling his emotions, had issues with anger. And I remember he came up to me and he was like, mister, when she was saying about, you know, we're going to hold the ball of energy in our hands. And he's like, I saw it was blue before she even said, you know, that the color of the energy was blue. And I, it, it got to him and it got to him. After those, after they would have that experience, getting him back into a classroom, he was way more receptive to learning um, and being there at in the moment and being, you know, I, I remember that's when I instituted, we started doing uh, novels and they were, we were reading together The Outsiders and he would just, I, I had to kind of prompt him to read a little, but it was always like, it's like, hey, what, what's going on? How come you're not volunteering to read? And he was like, but I can see it in my head. I can see the 
what's what are, what's going on while I'm reading. I can see the 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 story in my head. Um, so it's just that's a kid that needed to start writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a kid who needed to start writing. Kid kid who needed to. Um, and I tried, you know, uh, while I had him in eighth grade, I, I tried to get him. You know, I remember I, I introduced him to poetry. We we did the poetry thing, and I introduced him to haiku. And you know, they I, they're like, well, what what is this supposed to be? I was like, write about write about your neighborhood, write about. And I got some of the most interesting haiku, uh, courtesy of the South Bronx. It would be cool to look that kid up now and find out that he's like a writer and a gamer and like took all of those things to heart. Uh, I, that would do my heart so well if that, if that is how he turned out because he had so many strikes against him. Um, he had, he just, he didn't have the, the home life wasn't, wasn't great and, and support wasn't there. So he was one of those kids who coming to school was a, was, was a respite for a lot. So I would love to, I, I, I actually remember his full name, so I, I should look him up. See, see what's going on. Uh, but I, you know, there's a lot of times now where I'm, I'm wishing I had been a more confident teacher to bring in role-playing games or board games or something of that nature so that it would have been an, another avenue to attempt to teach. Yeah, I think kids should be, should be storytelling and, and playing games like that as soon as they possibly can, as young as they possibly can. Well, that's yeah, that sounded like that was a kid that needed a creative outlet. Yeah, that's a great thing is that there's a lot of uh, there's been a big spurt of uh, RPGs for a much younger audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, friends of mine uh, in Illinois, they have uh, I think he's eight or nine now. And they every so often they reach out like, hey, Joe, what, what's a good you know role playing game for him? So like I uh, a couple of years ago, they asked and uh, no, thank you. Evil is one of the ones I suggested. Mm -hmm. um, that's for Money Cook Games. Yes, it is. And I want to play that. <laughs> My my roommate, uh, his son is getting ready to turn nine and starting to get into the wanting to tell stories, and he is really into the video game Doom. So my roommate has adapted 5e rules uh, to Doom, and they call it Dungeons in Doom, where they play space rangers and go after monsters and... There's evil scientists and there's all homebrew, homemade rules, and they're having an absolute blast with it. Awesome. That does my heart such good. That's it's amazing. I remember starting my kids out on gaming when they were, I think, six and seven when I started my boys out. And it was total theater of the mind. And we would just sit down uh, with uh, my godchildren as well. And it was like, okay, this is going on. What do you do? This happens. What do you do? And they would just start spinning these stories. And they would come up with stuff that I hadn't even thought about. And they were so young. And it was just, it's so cool to watch kids do that. Well, it is. Well, uh, I mean, we could sit and talk around for a bit, but uh, we've been going on for a while. Uh, do we have any geek news for this week? I got nothing. Uh, the only real geek news that I have is PS5 finally got announced this week. Yeah, I saw I saw that, and I saw some uh, snarky comments about the uh, look of it. What's what's the deal with the look? Does it look funny? It it to to be fair, it does kind of look like a high tech Wi Fi router. Um, yeah, it, 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 if you, I guess if you put it in the vertical stand, it, it, it resembles the Wi-Fi router. Um, uh, the only geek news I have, is, and it goes back, uh, 
unfortunately something that got garbled when we tried to have Will on a couple weeks ago. Um, I have finished book one of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, <laughs> taking our chapter from uh, from things things Joe is watching that are, you know, several years old and he's a little bit behind on. And I am impressed with the storytelling. I'm impressed with the world building. I'm impressed with the characters, with the boldness of the creators to tackle tough subjects, um, to present very mature topics in very digestible ways. Um, and I am, I am looking forward to, to book two. And uh, just, I, I am sad that I missed this when it was being run the first time. Well, better late than never, right? We get to live through you again. Just, just like <laughs> it's like having a kid, except that, you know you're, you know I can't put you. I can't. I can't uh, I'm in my forties. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I can't give you the keys to my car. Well, I could, but I mean, <laughs> I'll at least return it back with a full tank of gas. <laughs> and the the best part about it is it is still totally watchable. It holds up very well because those life lessons that that show puts out are they they routinely come up. Not only that, but it's not something where it's not one of those cartoons where you look at it and there are problematic things in it. I have not run across anything that has bumped me on anything where it's like, even if it comes close to going, it's like, Oh wait, that's part of the lesson. Like um, when they finally made it to the North pole water tribe and he wouldn't train uh, Katara because our tribes practices, we don't train girls. Um, you know, at first I was like, Ooh, and then I was like, wait, no, there's going to be something here. This is, this, this this isn't going to stand, you know, that that's not the Avatar way. Exactly. And they do cover quite a bit in in the the, the two or three episodes that happen in, towards the end of that season. Some pretty monumental things happened oh, yeah. that they, they put the audience through. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, meeting Prince Zuko's sister and, and all of that was like, wow, that is. Oh, you're that far in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just, I'm very impressed. So, and I can totally see how Dave Filoni was able to, uh, how, well, not, I shouldn't say able to, how Dave Filoni was selected by George Lucas to then do Clone Wars based off of his work in Avatar. I mean, uh, storyteller recognizes storyteller is, is is my feeling, you know? And you can definitely see the influence and, and how big he, he brought it. You know, and you can see it came from that. Yep. For me, I, I forget why I was just randomly wanting to watch something, and I just watched one episode, and I said, "Ah, I'll do another." And I kept feeling like they were going to wrap this a storyline or two up. And as as I kept watching, I'm like, "Well, no, no, this is an actual running serial. This is not episodic as much as I thought it was." Yeah. And I'm just kind of binged through everything. Uh, no, it, I, it's very much serial all the way to the very final episode. I'm going to actually jump in. I have, I would like to, I have actually brought this up before on the show, but considering everything that's going on and considering that this is pride month, the one thing that I do want to put out there as far as my news and my contribution um, is if you have not watched it yet, uh, Pixar put out a short called out that is about a young man coming, coming out to his parents and the fears 
that he had about coming out to his parents. And in true Pixar fashion, uh, it adds a little magic to it. And it is absolutely beautiful. And happy Pride. Go watch it. It'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh. It's absolutely beautiful. And with everything going on, we need that right now. We need that smile. And it's there. And I give all the credit. Bravo, Disney. Bravo, Pixar for finally just laying it out there. It's really beautiful. Kayla, you can go ahead and take a geek point for that because they always seem to manage to work out those life lessons in a manner that is uh, able to be digested uh, by the younger audience. Agreed, and that's exactly what they do with this. Is it? It's good for kids. It's good for grown-ups. It it tells a story and a message both ways, and it's it's gorgeous. I love it. I'll have to definitely put it on my list. It's super cute as a short. It's not long. Um, also, I'm a big dork, and Twister is on Netflix. <laughs> we got cows. Floating cows. I, I, I was the, the science geek little girl uh, who, when you would lean down to her in her pretty little pinafore dress and ask her what she wanted to be when she grew up, she would look you straight in the face and say, storm catcher <laughs> or storm chaser. <laughs> And all of my parents' highbrow friends would just kind of gasp and walk away. (laughs) I think as a child, I reveled in making my parents' friends clutch their pearls. Oh, if they make it so easy. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, this was the the late 70s and early 80s when that was very easy to do. Now, was this pre-Dynasty or post-Dynasty? Honestly, um, we were a no-soap opera house. Um, so I don't know. I have no, I've never paid attention. Uh, so probably somewhere around the beginnings of it, but I'm not sure. So you guys were the, you guys were the ones that never watched the show. Yep. That was us. We barely had a TV. Like it, I was, I was so sheltered and, and such a weird little kid. And I kind of just was squirreled away all the time. So I miss a lot of stuff from that era. (laughs) Mental note, 80s binge watching with Kayla. (laughs) let's see what do we start her off with we got to start her off with the well the classics always you got to go with alf uh (laughs) night rider uh let's see what else uh what was the what was the one where they uh they 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 built the little robot girl oh my god Uh, i know what you're talking about but i can't remember what what was that joe I, i believe small wonder that's it that's it yeah, she's she's definitely got to watch Small Wonder, and that, I, re- that's a I remember point a too for little bit. That one out. <laughs> I remember a little bit of of those. Like I watched a little bit. I watched some Knight Rider. I know who Kit is. Um, I I remember that there was a Small Wonder, and I did watch a little of it. Um, I I had weird like we were just talking this afternoon. Like my two favorite TV shows from back in that era were Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie, and they came on back to back. And I would watch them and then I would, you know, go run off to play again. Um, so, like, I caught bits and pieces of stuff. Like, I know who Alf is. I didn't watch the whole series, but I caught bits and pieces of things before my mom would kick me back outside. By the way, Schoolhouse Rock is on Disney+. Plus. I saw that the other day. I saw that. Uh, have, you been, have you been catching any of the, uh, the Star Wars gallery? I started to watch it. And I got really into it until life stepped up and kicked me in the back. Um, but it is on my watch list. Oh my god! We the 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 one that came out last week was the uh, score for like the music. It is so beautiful. 
just wow. yeah they you know they um the the composer they went with a uh, younger guy um and he was like you know they basically came was like listen you're not we don't want you to do john williams we want you to do western with samurai and like they gave him uh you know they gave him um films to to kind of use as his jumping off points and what was it he <laughs> the, the episode starts off and he's got a a bass recorder basically um and that's that that, that that's the what makes the distinctive sound in the, the 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 in the episodes um but yeah definitely i mean it is a great series uh i mean there is the the legacy episode is such a love letter to the storytelling genius of uh george lucas um but each each episode you just you love the series that much more and it's also making uh it's making me hope october comes so much quicker so we can get season two and and i i don't know what kind of uh what kind of provisions they've got in those ndas that <laughs> they put out but no one is talking and i mean a lot of people are involved in this show and no one's mm -hmm. talking there is rumors running amok everywhere and each one makes me even happier than the one before because i'm hoping that we're going to get the things that are rumored to be coming out of it oh yeah yeah no it's yeah the the, the disney nda is uh is a strong nda <laughs> no one wants the great white hand of mickey to come down and slap them i can only equate it to the uh, forbidden donut in the simpsons <laughs> That's a geek That's point. Mmm, <laughs> forbidden donut. So, uh... And there's me. And then there's you. What about you, Chris? You watching anything interesting through all of this quarantining stuff? Um, if you don't mind, I might go a little long just to give you guys a heads up. Do it. Okay, just let you know. You can cut that part out, by the way. Just warning you guys that it's going to be a long one. Uh, actually, um, I've been tempted to to watch the expanse again because that's just an awesome tv show i just started uh, if, if yeah it's a little slow on season one but especially after episode four it starts to pick up and then season two they just they just pull off the training wheels uh but <clears throat> i wanted to to start off with just giving a shout out to a couple of uh, designers uh who are people of color um basically richard lescofer again who is my uh my big master teammate uh for esper genesis also, Lewis Porter Jr., who's also another local. Uh, he's done Mutants and Mastermind PDFs for forever. Uh, and he's just kind of starting to crank up and get back uh, into it again. Big. Um, Jerry Grayson, who's done a lot of cool stuff with uh, the old D6 system, as well as making his own uh, awesome original projects. Uh, there's also Chris Spivey, who's kind of regenerating... Call of Cthulhu by Harlem Unbound. So you're playing. I saw that. That yes. was amazing. He's even going to, it looks like he's also uh, up to be, uh, he's nominated to be one of the, um, uh, one of the board members for Gamma, which is the Gamma Manufacturers Association. Excellent. Uh, also, uh, uh, um, Elroy Lantana. Uh, actually, let me double check that name because. I know I got the first name right, but give me a second. Because he's in Tampa, so he's sort of local, and he also made a great game called The Pip System that is also um, also children-friendly as well. 
give me just a second because I want to make sure I get it right. I have a slight learning disability where sometimes it just names and pronunciations don't stick as well, which makes it really fun sometimes when I'm trying not to put my foot in my mouth. Totally understand. I have trouble with names a lot. So, ah, yeah, Eloy, last, uh, last Hannah. So I was a little off. I apologize, Eloy. Uh, in addition to um, uh, Mike Pondsmith, does that name ring a bell with everybody? Not quite. Sort of-ish? You probably have been drooling at the uh, drooling at the at the lip stare if you're into video games for Cyberpunk 2077. Okay. Because that's based off Cyberpunk 2020, which right. my which Mike Pondsmith uh, developed for Elsosaurian Games. Actually, he's the owner of the company. Um, he also did uh, Castle Falkenstein, uh, which right. which let you play a game. Half of the Castle Falkenstein was a novel. The other half was you learning how he taught the aristocrats how to play a role-playing game with cards because aristocrats don't play with dice. Dice are for commoners. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting concept. And also, I, I got a real kind of fanboy shiver earlier in the week because someone had asked me to, Eric Lang, who uh, uh, asked me to, you know, see, you know, name some people that you know that are, you know, POC, that are game designers. We mentioned Mike Pondsmith, and I name-dropped one of my favorite little role-playing games he did, which was called Dream Park. So, Dream Park was a role-playing game that the Quick Start version, uh, both versions actually, but the Quick Start version especially had you play on a little tiny playing card about the size, even smaller than an index card. You're playing a player inside a game. It was basically called the Dream Park. It was a huge amphitheater before there was a hollow deck in Star Trek where you were, before the, you know, the WD got, WWE got huge, before we had influencers on the internet, before... Uh, a whole idea of the transmedia was going on. You all played in it as a role-playing game with hollows, hologram swords and basically staffs that were also little hacking systems. And you were in there with a the game master. So before even Hunger Games, hmm. and uh, you know, once you play, if once you played the big game out, it would spin out into like different little mini games that you could play at home or you could watch on TV live, um, and then. The setup for it was that's how you played that game. And like I said, on top of that game, you're playing for game points. If you died, you lost half your game points, but you could get them again by allowing your player to come back as a zombie to attack his formerly his former teammates at the end of the game session, which <laughs> sounds <laughs> indie as fuck, right? It sounds indie as fuck. See, Mike Pondsmith was so far ahead of his time. Castle yeah. Falkenstein sounds like it would sound like an indie game you would find today, and somebody would be like, look at the new thing I invented. No, I mean, Mike Pondsmith is like right up there with like, you know, Greg Stafford and coming up with concepts that were way ahead of their time that could have been better commercial successes. And now people are kind of reinventing that. Uh, give me just a second. That, that game almost sounds like uh, Ready Player One uh, did a little borrowing from. Very much so. Well, you see, so. That was, I'm trying to find the date for Dream Park. No, I don't want to steal the PDF, jerk. 1992. Wow. Yes, yes. So it gets even deeper, my friends, when we talk about Dream Park, because that's the role-playing game. The role-playing game was actually based off a novel or a trilogy of novels where you had that setup. But in addition to that setup, something like a murder happened. So the game had to keep going because, you know, 
big corporate America, we can't stop the thing that's making us a billion dollars. So the security director would have to come in and play closed room mystery with a bunch of people who are also when they're not, you know, they're in between playing like the athletes they kind of are to being the egomaniacs they are to the characters they're playing in the game. That was that, and those trilogy of books were put together by Larry Niven. Larry Niven, who did uh, a, who wrote many, you know, classics, including Ringworld. Is Ringworld right. ring a bell? Yeah. Oh, oh yes, yeah. definitely no Ringworld. Because, because of Larry Niven, that's Ringworld. Because of Halo, right? Everybody knows Halo, which inspired yeah. Ringworld, which was inspired by Ringworld. Halo's by Microsoft. Guess where Mike Pondsmith worked for a while? He worked at Microsoft because he was the big story consultant on Crimson Skies. Oh, wow. Oh. It's even crazier because Larry Niven, his other partner was Stephen Barnes, who is an awesome science fiction writer, another person of color, who's written a lot of other things. I have to, I'll give you a couple of them in, in the messages. So, and to, and, ah, so let me try one more time. So in addition to him writing Helping Dream Park, his wife is, again, with my little uh, learning disability, uh, Tananidi Tanana Reeve Du, who was originally a, uh, a journalist for the Miami Herald, but was also a horror writer. And she has some great, you know, award-winning stuff that's out. Oh, wow. Don't even get me started on Octavia Butler. That's another story. So both of them together right now, they're doing a class for Afrofuturism. So basically trying to merge the concept of science fiction, being as they are tied in with Western stuff, to the African-American experience and how I could speak, you know, how you can merge them together or Africa as it is. I mean, Black Panther is Afrofuturism right. and it was awesome. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Speaking of that, are, have you been, uh, have you been following uh, Brandon Dixon of uh, Swordsfall? Yes. Uh, on the Twitter. I need to, I need to actually get into some of his stuff he's doing. Oh my God. I, awesome. I've been, yeah, I've been, you know, on Twitter and then and then checked out some of a little bit of his stuff here and there. I love the artists that he's working with and I love his model for working with his artists. Uh one paying them uh and then two promoting the hell out of them. Uh I have my wish list of of folks I want to get on. Rich is definitely on my list. Lewis is definitely on my list. Excellent. Um, and and then and then on my reaches is is Brandon from uh, Swords Fall. So but definitely. Oh, but here's the punchline, by the way. Here's my punchline. One time they're running their class, and who walks into their class but Jordan Peele? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that's the reaction everybody has in the classroom. They're like, oh, my God, Jordan Peele, that's awesome. And Jordan Peele's like, no, no, you don't understand. This man that you're looking at bored up on the podium, he's my hero. You're oh, wow. Jordan Peele grew up reading Stephen Barnes. That is so cool. I'm dropping a geek point, by the way, for that knowledge drop. That was amazing. Thank you for that journey. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that is my news was just that little bit of fanboying over because, you know, talking about actually getting to even talk about Dream Park because hardly anybody heard it. But uh, just a little later, just like the next day out of nowhere, Altasarian goes, yeah, we have an excerpt from Dream Park. And it's how to design your venture like people design a TV series. Because that part is not under a licensing agreement, so they could reprint that. Oh, that's cool. And I would like to think, I could be a, totally arrogant. I would like to think that since we were talking about it in Twitter, it just happened to fall on the right lap. I could be wrong. But if the coincidence within 24 hours is pretty crazy. And then, of course, also Mike Pondsmith came out with his awesome uh, essay on what he's been thinking about Black Lives Matter. And if you haven't read it, you should. 
have to take I'll, a look at that. I'll steal the punch. Uh, I'll, be, I'll spoil the punchline. Basically, he said, when I wrote Cyberpunk, it was a warning, not an aspiration. Wow. <laughs> ah, so thank you for the geek <laughs> point. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you I, for the knowledge and, and, and the now long list of things I need to go look into and, and get a hold of. So And also post all of the links in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Because we had so much extra time to begin with. Now we have to find something to cut out. Less bathrooms. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. no, it's okay. It keeps Joe out of trouble. <laughs> yeah, the more time I do producing and editing, the less time I have for mischief. Hey, I know just if you just like clip out a lot of the pauses and ums and ums, you save a lot of time. Oh, I, I do. The I, I am I'm a huge fan of Audacity's uh truncate silence. So um, I guess at this point we're wrapping up, and uh, you or do you want to introduce me, plug in my stuff, or well, let's uh, the way we wrap up, uh, we go to Kayla because she is the scoreboard keeper. Yes, and of course, uh, Chris knows that he is the geekiest. Uh, so we go to the scoreboard, and Chris blew us all out of the water uh, with five geek points, uh, with the rest of us just one apiece, I think, because we were just so enamored with listening to you. Thank you very much. So, yes, please tell us all the wonderful things. Okay, well, first, I thank you guys for listening to me. Um, uh, basically, I have uh, I have a, a lot of friends who uh, also have the gift of gab, and so when I'm hanging out with them, I don't get to, to say much, actually. <laughs> so this is me, but bottled up, because I actually get to get all my stuff out. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you on again to do it again. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, okay, so uh, my stuff so far is I have a Patreon uh, at Patreon slash Ganza Gaming. And that's G-A-N-Z-A. There you can follow. I'm putting together my own um, world that I hope to have be in more than one uh, game system. We'll see how it is. It's called, at the moment, it's called Solar Sails. And you are basically an enclosed sailing vessel. Not a ship, a vessel. uh, That goes between the floating islands that are separated by a great black void. In fact, the islands all have like a cocoon cocoon of hurricane winds that protects them from the coldness of the void. Uh, And like some of the trademark creatures is you can play a seven foot tall giant hamster. (laughs) Giant space hamsters. I don't, I don't know where I would get inspiration for this type of world, but that might that clue you in. Um, I'm just so jammed (laughs) with spells. Exactly. Um, (laughs) There's an inspiration, but I also would like to think that I've kind of fine-tuned the setting to avoid the weaknesses uh, I thought that, you know, that concept eventually got fell into. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's, a, it's one system. It's not like a whole bunch of other big things. So there's that. Um, also, if you're into the Cypher system, I have about a third of the community content library is my stuff. I do fantasy. I did science fiction. Um, new rules, tons of new monsters. Uh, if you go to the to Mighty Cook Games and you go to the Cypher Creator System, you can see me there. Um, just a brag point, I guess. Uh, usually in the top 11 or so, about four or five are things I either did by myself or I did a little layout and design for uh, as help for my fellow people because I believe uh, uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. Helping Absolutely. Everybody. Um, also, I have actually... F- 
Funny enough, recently uh, two 5e things in DMs Guild, because if you don't do anything with DMs Guild, evidently you don't know anything about community content when you try to establish your cred credentials by going to a panel at a convention. <laughs> They're like, they don't even, what's community content? I mean, DMs Guild. Oh, so you're DMs Guild. No, it's community. I don't understand. So <laughs> it's kind of like how, again, I'm getting that same thing. Uh, yeah, so if it's not D&D, &D, you, you guys aren't interested in it. Nope, nope. Even if everything else, but like what font <laughs> and what template to use could all be good information. Nope, nope. So again, I'm stuck in the wheelhouse if everybody wants to play D&D &D and, and I'm all alone in the out, outside cold. Um, but the uh, I have an Emperor on Adventure okay. called uh, Edge of the Mists, and I have a giant rodent race that wouldn't be anything like my other race I'm talking about, but, you know, I may have a slightly different name and a slightly different setup so I can have practice putting my stuff together. So, in a fantasy context, because I've, I've done a few monsters for Esper Genesis, so. And then I have one lone product out for Tiny D6 called Hemlock Row. Uh, basically, um, have you guys played Tiny Dungeons? Have not. Or Tiny Frontiers or Tiny Wastelands? Mm -mm, You're sensing a pattern, right? Yes. So it's 20, tiny. all of it is basically the tiny D6 system. This one, you guys are going to be like, yeah, okay, I get this. Basically, you roll 2D6, you get a 5 or you get a 6 on the die, not added together. You've succeeded. If you're good at it or you're good at something, uh, you get 3D6. If you suck, you get 1D6. And then it's a very simplified game. Uh, basically, all weapons do 1 damage. There are, there are optional rules that give you the kind of rules you expect for armor and multiple damage and stuff like that, but that is the core game right there. And uh, according to them, you have to use one of their little micro settings. One of their micro settings had an awesome little urban fantasy bet to it, so that was about four or five pages long, and I turned it into 23 pages of an entire hidden neighborhood of evil fae that are manipulating the city, thanks to their glamour and invisibility to you know regular humans. Because the PCs aren't regular humans. That sounds really cute. Cute, it does. But it's also it's like cute, like fairy tale, grim, cute. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's my definition of cute. It's yeah. I'm so I'm a little weird. <laughs> random death, create you know creatures that uh, giant red cap earthworms, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, totally. You know, it's it's just a cute little game. <laughs> and I'll I'll put some I'll give you uh, give you guys some links for that for the show notes. Yes, yes, definitely. We have to put we have to put all the links in the show notes. <laughs> uh, Kayla. Okay, um, you can find me on the twits at uh, hawk underscore Kayla. That is K A I L A. Um, you can find me on Instagram at uh, geekiest Kayla. Uh, that's kind of my hub. That's where I, I check the most as far as geeky stuff is concerned. All of uh, my endeavors are usually there. Um, you can find me playing Jade on uh, the D&D 5th Edition actual play podcast, Not Safe for Wizards. Um, and if you are in the downtown uh, Davie area, if you live in South Florida or you're visiting, uh, we also own a, a thrift 
shop called Secondhand Goddess, which we are now open again. Masks are required. Um, and we would love to have you come down and uh, and see us and say hi. Uh, that's at 4148 Davy Road. We are a thrift store vintage shop. Uh, we also support local artists and we have a whole bunch of pride stuff as well that's out um, all the time, but even more so this month. Uh, and we'd love to see everybody there as well. I think that's it. And as a day job, as being a hospice nurse, I am very happy to hear that you're requiring masks. Thank you. Don't send more people to me, please. No, 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 no. That is definitely not the goal. Will. Ah, you can find me absolutely nowhere. I am not out there in the Twitter universe yet. I am working on that. Uh, hopefully you can find me here a little more often. Definitely, we will definitely find you here next week when we're going to take the whole episode to let people learn about you and get to know you. I'll make sure to uh, brush my teeth in. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Demorgus, D-E-M-O-R-G-U-S. You can find the podcast across all the social medias at The Geekiest Pod. Uh, you can f- keep an eye out for my evolving, the evolving DM stuff. We're still... Getting that sorted out so that I can start doing remote learn to plays and one shots. Uh, and you can find me as the DM of the Not Safe for Wizards 5th edition actual play podcast where I play everybody but the player characters. Um, I think that's it for me. Uh, as we've been saying lately, uh, thank you for listening. Please stay safe out there. Uh, please, uh, you know, follow the social distancing rules and all that. Uh, as Pete would say, don't be a dick. We believe that Black Lives Matter. Thanks for listening this week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Leave the world a better place than you found it. Bye. Hey there, listener. Before we get out of here, just want to uh, ask you to do us a little favor. Um, two little favors. One, if you go to Apple Podcasts, Leave us a rating and review there. Five stars would be great, but hey, we're leaving that up to you. And second would be share the podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, whoever you think would enjoy a deep dive into geek culture. Uh, that would definitely help us. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Armored Bear Productions.